see myself as kind of a cross between the vegan Oprah and the vegan Don King. As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. Happy New Year from me, your host, Chrissy Benson. If you love being part of the Vegan Posse, please like this podcast, subscribe, and share it with your friends. And if you'd like more information about health coaching, internal family systems coaching, or my vegan novel, Marrying Myself, visit my website, christinemelaniebenson.com. Finally, if you haven't already, please post a nice review of Marrying Myself on Amazon. It's the single most helpful thing you can do to get the major vendors like Amazon to take notice of all the vegans in fiction. And together we can normalize veganism through the arts. Thanks guys. Now on to our episode. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes the notorious Chef AJ, who's been devoted to a plant-exclusive diet for over 46 years. Chef AJ was the host of Healthy Living with Chef AJ on Foodie TV. She's the author of three best-selling books, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, Own Your Health, and the 10th anniversary edition of Unprocessed. Chef AJ was the executive pastry chef at Sante Restaurant in Los Angeles, where she was famous for her sugar, oil, salt, and gluten-free vegan desserts, which use the fruit, the whole fruit, and nothing but the whole fruit. She broadcasts Chef AJ live on YouTube daily at 11 a.m. Pacific. She's the creator of the Ultimate Weight Loss Program and is proud to say that her IQ is higher than her cholesterol. In 2018, she was inducted into the Vegetarian Hall of Fame. Chef AJ, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you ready Thanks. for the ride of your life? <laughs> Thank you. I had the ride of my life on August 6, 1982. I, I stupidly went on a ride called a mechanical bull and ended up breaking my back and having permanent bladder damage. So this might be the second ride of my life. <laughs> whoa, whoa, that almost sounds like the ride of your death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, in my defense, first of all, I don't drink alcohol, but this took place in a bar. And in my defense, um, yes, it probably was a stupid thing to do because I'm really not much of a risk taker. And since then, I'm not a risk taker at all. <laughs> but the way the mechanic, you know, this was like when uh, Urban, what was it called? Urban Cowboy, the Deborah Wingham movie was really popular. And the thing, the way the ride works is, you know, you have this glove that has a sensor and the sensor has to be plugged in. And what happens is when, you know, when you're going to be thrown, the sensor breaks so that the ride stops well the guy that runs the ride was flirting with i, I, I won this lawsuit i mean not that it oh. helps now oh, what wow. happened is he, he was flirting with a girl and he didn't wait for me to be plugged in and he started the ride so i was i wasn't even like in the i wasn't even ready i was screwed before it happened wow i don't wow. tell that this with this, this in California? Well, yes, this was in, I I, I, lived, I lived at the time in, in uh, Southern California. It was in a bar in not, uh, Santa, 
something Santa, not Santa Rosa, not Santa Paula, something up in Northern California. And it was called the Saddle Rack Bar. And uh, yeah, August 6, 1982. Wow. I was in a body cast. Yeah, I was in a body cast for gosh, almost a year. And I mean, it was terrible. Wow, it was how old it, were you? At the I was time? 22. And the thing that really hurts oh. my feelings, I'm very sensitive. I don't know if you know that about me. <laughs> um, me too. Me and, and it's really hard being, I don't really consider myself an influencer. I don't think I influence anyone. I just tell people what I love. And um, people show me to me on social media because um, of my posture, you know, oh, it's because she's vegan. No, it's because I basically crushed my spine. There were two vertebra because I was thrown up in the air and then my legs were straight. So I came straight down. So basically L2 and L1 were like squished. And so I'm artificially shorter than I should be because, you know, when you're, you're vertebra, like think of cardboard boxes, once they squish, they don't unsquish. So, so two of them are like squished because I would have been a lot taller. I'm five, five. And then the thing called the spinous process was broke. So I have like, I got, you know, my back, it's not like you saw me, like, that's like, I wouldn't, if I was going to wear a bathing suit, I wouldn't wear a bikini. I'd wear a one piece because you can, you know, you can see the deformity. And so, yeah, I do have kyphosis, but it's not because I'm vegan or have osteoporosis. It's because I was in a really serious accident wow. when I was. Wow. Wow. So, so all those, uh, all the haters out there, you know, like, why don't you get to the truth of a situation before you judge somebody when you're not a medical doctor and you're, you know, they just, they say, well, she's this because of this. No, I was in a very serious accident and I lost about a year of my life. I couldn't Amazing. even sleep in bed. I couldn't, I had to sleep. Thank goodness. My mom had a recliner. So I had to sleep sitting up because, you know, a body cast goes from basically to your underarms, to your, to your hip bones. I mean, it's, it's like being a mummy also. It was just, it was terrible. But anyway, I don't know why I brought that up, but you said the ride of your life. And then my brain was like, oh, I already had the ride of my life. <laughs> you already had that and you survived it. That sounds just excruciating. Were you, and you were just a kid then, 22. Yeah, years I was 22 and it was so pain. I mean, it was so painful. And here's the funny thing. So of course I was taken to the emergency room, but uh, I wish I could think of the city. It wasn't Santa Cruz. It was somewhere near Fremont, California. I, I don't know. But the funny thing is, is so taken to the emergency room and this is obviously they triage. And of course, if somebody's not breathing or having a heart attack, you know, that has to come first. But what happened is there was a prison nearby and there was a fight. And so like there were people being stabbed. So it, it took, it took almost eight hours for me to be seen. And so oh. what happens is your body actually, when you're in that much pain that long, you actually almost become delirious and your body starts kicking out some kind of mechanism. So that, because you can't suffer that long. But the weird thing was, is I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't pee. I had to pee and I couldn't. They go oh. and, and there, you know, the emergency rooms, as you know, are not bastions of compassion and patience. Oh, they're and the worst. Have to pee. And like eight hours later, I'm like, you don't understand. I have to pee. They go, oh, you're just, you're just, you just don't want to use the bedpan. I'm like, no. So of course I could, I mean, my bladder is completely messed up now from it, but it's true. You wow. know, once they catheterized me, they said, oh, well, I guess you really did have to, I couldn't pee. And so, yeah, it was, it was, oh, but then it was not funny. It was kind of sad. So I was put in, even though I had good private insurance, the hospital I was in was like, I don't know what they call it, like a state hospital. So the people there, I just, you know, not that they didn't deserve care, but I, I was in a room with three other people, you know, like in LA, you go to Cedar Sinai, you're in your own room. That's because everybody has their own room. So, and, and the thing is these people that, by, that they were really sick. One of them, um, her legs were run over by a train and she lost her legs. And so she was experiencing what was called phantom pain 
you know, awesome. that's a thing. And she just screamed all the time. And so, so basically the only savings grace is, I mean, this is how I knew, I, I mean, I don't know much about addiction thing. I mean, other than food addiction, but they gave me Demerol 75 milligrams every three hours. And the thing is, is I, like that drug, I just, I liked it way too much. Not that I went out to look for it. Cause I wouldn't mm-hmm. know how to get street Demerol or even be inject. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of needles, but the thing is, is I could feel like, wow, I like, I know why people do this. Cause like, it's just, it was just like amazing, you know? And then, and then the order was there. So even when I really wasn't in pain, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give it to me. Give it to me. You know, what, because what does it do? You just feel like really relaxed. I you know, I, yeah, I've never drank alcohol. So I'm guessing that maybe for people that drink, it feels that way. I've never did cocaine or anything. It just, you know, I guess some kind of like euphoria. It's like, you know, you could, a truck could run over your face and you're like, all is well, it, you know. Yeah, luckily, you know, but I just remember that like, wow, this is like really powerful stuff, you know. So what I'm saying that out of a place of compassion, because I can understand why people, you know, do what they do, because if yeah. you get this, you know, but the, the only problem is, is generally that doesn't last. See, I was, this, yeah. this was, this was a week of my life. So I did not become a dem a Demerol addict mm-hmm. or a drug addict, mm-hmm. but I, but, but the thing is, is that eventually, you know, the, the, the things that feel so good at the beginning, they, they, you don't get that same amount of pleasure. Yeah, You acclimate and it just becomes the question of maintenance and just yeah, you're using you're using bad. not to feel bad but yeah. i just i remembered i mean that was the first and the last time i had it you know it was for it's not like i'm dreaming about having demerol again but you know i don't right. even know what we talked about this but 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 it made me realize like i could understand from a place of compassion why people yeah the things they like because yeah. they're they're there's Doug, dr doug lie was a super normal stimuli you know there yeah. is no there's no Demerol in nature. Um, yeah. So these are pretty powerful drugs. Um, but, you know, thank God they're there for people when you need them, you know, because. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I get it too, because life is hard enough, even if nothing really awful happens to you, <laughs> you know, life is hard enough, especially if you're a sensitive person. So yeah. when something bad actually does happen to you, yeah, the desire for some comfort, some super normal comfort, I totally get it. And honestly, I'm not a drinker, but if alcohol worked better for me, you know, if alcohol did for me what it seems to do for other people, I would be a lot more interested. So it's, it's yeah. so weird because I mean, I tried drinking in college, um, just I mean, just because everybody drank, and and it just it didn't taste good. Like I just uh-huh. didn't get all uh-huh. the, and it actually made me vomit, which was good oh. because it was like, <laughs> what are what is so great about this? This is disgusting. Right. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of gross. Yeah, you know, I was talking to which doctor the other day, one one of the food addiction doctors, Dr. Eric Walsh, and he was saying, you know, like the first time somebody lights up a cigarette or drinks wine, they don't go, "Mm, this is delicious, that the, the association that it tastes good you know, it comes way after the addiction has started to be in place. You know what I'm saying? So I can't imagine anybody on their first cigarette says, boy, this is just wonderful. You know, I love the coughing. And and even, you know, especially, I mean, like, you know, it's funny because I, 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 on Halloween last year, I had a costume and it involved a can of beer. And so to have a can of beer, somebody had to buy me a beer because I didn't want to be seen buying a beer. I ended up using the beer to wash my hair because I read that it could be good for that. And, and, you know, I mean, it's, it smelled okay, you know, like it didn't like, it wasn't like wine or hard liquor or whatever, but it's, it's just so interesting to me that people, they say, well, they drink 
coffee or they drink alcohol for the taste. Well, if that was true. Wouldn't you be drinking decaf coffee and non-alcoholic wine? Because it tastes the same. So I think people right. are a little denial about why they do what they do. But I find the whole thing fascinating. If I wasn't in my 60s, I'd probably go back for a PhD in addictive nutrition like Dr. Joan Iflin have, because it's to me like that, that that's just interesting to me, you know? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. To me too, obviously. So when you had this accident, when you were 22, you were vegan at that time, correct? Correct. I went vegan on September 1st, 1977. So I would have been um, vegan for about five years. Yeah. Wow. I wasn't a healthy vegan though. See, I, 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 I first and foremost, and I still at the end of the day became vegan for ethical reasons. And so I was quite obese and I was almost 200 pounds. That's like, you know, like, hey, like how much do I, so it's like, God, 90 pounds more than I weigh now. So, um, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember if there was anything I could even eat at the hospital, but yeah, I was vegan, but I was very unhealthy. I was, I didn't know about the pleasure trap then, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and everything I ate was basically, well, it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't ever salt. It was sugar and fat, but for me, it was like caffeine, sugar and caffeine. That was like my oh. favorite combination. Coke Slurpees. That, those were, yeah, that, that, that was my, that, that was my addiction. Interesting. You know, Interesting. It, 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 it's so weird because I remember, you know, I, I quit. I, you know, I, people tend to remember their sobriety date, whether whatever they're sober from. And it was July 6, 2003, when I had my last Coke Slurpee. But I loved Coke Slurpees the way that people love wine, love wine. And people that love coffee, love coffee. Yeah. And it wasn't just a regular Coke Slurpee, Chrissy. I had to have exactly eight pumps of the vanilla syrup. 7-Eleven would have these different uh, syrups out for people that wanted to flavor their coffee. And so I was adding even more sugar. And I, I mean, you know, and when I think back, like what 40, because 43 was the age I stopped sugar. And I'm thinking, what 43-year-old has Coke Slurpees for breakfast? Like I knew that there was something wrong with that, but I couldn't stop. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sugar and caffeine is powerful. Like it's definitely, it's definitely screwed up, screwed me up. Like I, yeah. It's yeah. Definitely screwed because, up. because I mean, I didn't have a problem with seven up or ginger ale. Mm-hmm. Like I could drink, like, for example, like if I had a, like when I was little, when you were little or when I was little, my family was little, like, if you had a stomach ache, you'd get a little bit of ginger ale and yeah. I could drink, yeah. but it wasn't like I had to keep drinking ginger ale, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, Another ginger ale, I got to have another seven up, but, but there's something about caffeine and sugar. And even it's not the sugar. I remember, oh my gosh, for the longest time, I was also addicted to, do you remember Tab, T-A-B? Yeah, my mom used to drink that. Yeah. Oh my God, tab. And then I put like a squeeze of lime in and then uh-huh, you, you uh-huh. go to like, a, I lived near, I think it was a Carl's Jr. And you can get like this giant one. And I, I mean, I mean, the, the, those artificial sweeteners, I think are just as addictive. And, and the thing is, they don't taste good. This is the th- part I never understood. It tasted terrible. <laughs> it's yeah, we develop such interesting habits. Yeah, things don't taste good, but we just train ourselves and they're addictive nonetheless. Yeah, we're, we're very interesting creatures. Yeah. I love it when, when I, when I hear about, you know, people that go to the fast food or McDonald's and they order, you know, you know, Big Mac cheeseburger fries and a Diet Coke. I know, I know, like that's going to make up for all the other calories. Yeah, the zero calories is going to balance it out. So yeah. you, so did you grow up in California? Are you a California I girl? Grew up in Chicago on the south side of Chicago. Oh, yeah. oh I, I did not to, remember that. Okay. Yeah, I moved to California when I was eleven, and uh-huh. I stayed in California almost fifty years, and then I and then I kind of bounced around the last five years, first to the desert, which I would have loved if I couldn't make any friends, vegan friends anyway. I'm too huh. too, 
two friends in three and a half years that were vegan. So that wasn't enough. So now I'm up in Northern California where there's like this thing called the Sacramento Vegan Society. There's 7,000 members in my meetup group. There's a thousand. I mean, it, I almost can't get my work done because they are meeting okay. because they, they've trained the restaurants up here. Even ones that aren't vegan have vegan SOS free menus. And so it's like literally every day there's a potluck, there's a meetup. It, it, it's, it's amazing. Like I have more friends than I I've ever had before. So that's it's amazing. That's amazing. Cool. I remember a long time ago living in New York city, I was, I was a new vegan in New York city. There are so many people, but I found it kind of hard to make friends. I remember going to a talk with a local activist named Mickey, a longtime animal activist who was well known in those circles. And I remember him talking about activism and saying, you'll make the best friends you've ever made in this movement. And I remember thinking, well, that's a big plus because I'm having a hard time making friends. So it never occurred to me that that might be a benefit. And sure enough, sure enough, you know, some of my closest friends that I'm still in touch with are through that world. Um, we, so tell me, so going back, what was it that prompted you to go vegan? For the oh my God. Yeah. The, well, I, I've told this story before, but can I just say one more thing? Cause I know we have a shared passion for Dr. Doug Lyle. Uh -huh. He's the, because I loved living in the desert because it was affordable. My house was paid for. The weather was conducive to my lungs. I've had asthma mm -hmm. since I was born. Mm -hmm. I almost could get around the scorpions. I didn't love them. But um, he says once social ecology is one of the number one predictors of their life happiness. And that's what he told me. And so yeah. I am a lot happier now having a lot of friends. So yeah. I went vegan. I think I was born with the gene or the inclination to not want to hurt animals. And I think it comes from that um, I saw animals being hurt when I was little. I had a crazy father and I don't say that like out of meanness. My father was kicked in the head by a horse. And so he had brain damage. And this was before they had, they probably had neurologists, but not to the degree where they could really, you know, figure out because he actually, like, you could see like the side of his head, there was like, like a thing like Frankenstein. And so it made him violent and he, he abused our dog. And it was really, really sad. And I, and I couldn't protect my little dog Snoopy um, from the abuse. And, and so there was a part of me, like I must've made a decision when I was four that I'm going to do everything I can to protect animals. And then I didn't, I didn't know about vegan. We, you know, the thing is we, we kept kosher. I was an Orthodox Jew. I mean, I'm still Jewish ethnically. I'm not observant. And the nice thing is I wasn't exposed to the same taste that other people are because I hear about people saying, oh God, I love bacon. I love, you know, sausage or ham or BLTs or, you know, crab's legs or shrimp or lobster. Well, when you're Jewish, you don't eat anything from a pig and you don't eat any kind of scavengers. There was no clams or oysters. So we didn't eat that. You don't even eat milk with meat. So I never had a cheeseburger or a bacon cheeseburger. I never had a pizza with pepperoni. So all these hyper palatable foods that people like love from animal products, not me. And I was allergic to milk. So how much animals were I really eating? And also, even when we ate meat or fish as Jewish people, you can only eat certain cuts. It was very strange, the, these kosher laws. So maybe there was some chicken. Maybe there was, um, I don't know, certain types of meat. And I couldn't even eat meat if it looked like meat. So for example, my mom would have to burn the hell out of it beyond recognition to get me to eat a piece of meat. And the funny thing is, if my grandfather came over, we'd have to fight for what was called the end piece, you know, the one that was burned beyond recognition with no pink. And then maybe I'd eat it. I couldn't eat it if it had a bone. So like she would maybe like, like I could eat tuna fish sandwich, 
you know, it didn't look like anything, but like the way they would serve fish in a restaurant, you know how they keep the bone and the head in? I'm not eating that. I couldn't eat lox. I'd eat the bagel with the onion and the tomato and the cream cheese. So um, she would make me like, I could eat like chili with ground beef, but if it looked like an animal at all, like if I could recognize anything bloody, bony, scaly, I wouldn't eat it. And, you know, she was fine with that. And I even, I didn't have the word vegan, but I knew I didn't want to eat it. But, you know, what, there was no internet or Neil Barn, Neil Barnard might've been alive in the sixties. He probably was, but there was no information. And she, this is what she knew to be the best for us. But the day that I left home on September 1st, 1977, to go to the University of Pennsylvania with 17 and a half, I became an ethical vegan. One, because I knew that I didn't want to eat them anyway. I thought they were gross and they, they don't taste very good unless you do something to them. Like people don't understand. It's the sugar, fat, and salt. It's the barbecue sauce. It's not the rib. How many people would take you know, pork ribs or spare ribs, boil them and eat them? No, you love the sugar, fat, and salt. You love bacon because of the sugar, fat, and salt. You love sushi because of what you dip it in. If people really love sushi, then why don't they just eat the little raw fish? No, they got to doctor it up with wasabi and soy sauce and, you know, rice that has sugar in it. It, it. People, you know, you're not a carnivore. You're certainly not an obligate carnivore. So that's the thing is people don't understand that they don't like the taste of animal products. They like the accoutrements of the animal products. And so um, I was a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania because I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian uh, because it just seemed like a very noble profession. I, I love animals in general, but uh, domesticated animals in particular because I, they, they share, they can live inside the house. You know, I, I love, you know, cows and pigs too, but in general, it, they, they're not that conducive. Some pigs could live in the house. So I like, I love more <laughs> animals. And so I, I was fortunate enough to go to Penn. I was able to get a, a, a financial aid and get a scholarship. And in order to do this, I had to work for a veterinarian. And the very first day of the job, he hands me a tank of live salamanders and he goes, I need you to decapitate them. And I'm like, you know, I, how am I going to do this? Because I remember once I went fishing, you know, that like this was supposed to be, this was supposed to be fun. Like, you know, you know, teeth. Like, like the whole, like as, as an Orthodox Jew, there were things we didn't do. Like we never wore fur. We never hunted. Uh, for some reason, I guess it was okay to fish. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is so bizarre. Like, first of all, who wants to like kill a worm and touch a worm? And then oh, it's a like, I, I like the whole idea of fishing. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. like I just, like it was ridiculous. So mm -hmm. I couldn't even go fishing. I mean, I guess if you gave me the pole, I could hold it. But like this whole <laughs> idea of like, it just was just so bizarre to me. Like, how, how is this fun? Like, it's fun if you go to a carnival and they have like these little toy fishes, you know, like that's kind of fun. But yeah. I, I thought it's just bizarre entertainment uh, or, you know, I guess the people did eat them. But anyway, so I'm like, I can't do this, you know, because I'm, I was like a deer in the headlight, you know, the guy had a white coat and I'm like, I knew that I could lose my scholarship. And so I did it one time and it was just like, I knew it wasn't for me. I threw what up. What the purpose of decapitating the salamander? Yeah. So that's a good question. And believe me, I asked. And what he said, I wish I could remember his name. And I wonder if he's still alive, but I'd probably not. Because if I was like 17, he was probably like in his 40s or 50s. But he said, I'm doing protein lens regeneration experiments in the amphibian. So I only need their eye. And then oh. the thing is, is, you know, because then when he said, and when you're done with the salamanders, we need you to do the frogs. And I'm like, okay, oh. you know, and so I, um, 
I, I just, I went, I was throwing up because it was a horrible experience oh. to kill something on purpose. And I, I, I can't even really kill bugs. I mean, I, I don't, that doesn't mean that I've never killed a bug. If I've been really, really scared, like of, like in the, I mean, now I, we don't anymore. Now that we have this tool, it's called a bazooka. I love it. What it does is it's like suction. And like, so if I see a spider or even a fly and go, and then I can relocate it, even cockroaches. Yeah. So we don't, we don't, I mean, I'm not to say I've never killed a bug in my life, but in general, like I, this whole idea of having a fly swatter, it's like, no, like we, yeah. we, they live in their, our house when they come in, we don't enjoy it sometimes, but like, I mean, like it's a game with us to try to catch them and, and, and catch them at least, of course. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was, um, it was bizarre. And so I, I went to student health because I was vomiting because I felt so, you know, sickened by the experience to kill something on purpose. And for no reason, it wasn't like it was attacking me. And um, I explained to the doctor that I just can't do this. And so I had to stay working for him for the rest of the semester. And basically I just washed lab equipment that was gross and slimy. And I then, because to be a veterinarian, I was a biology major. Next came, you know, the dissection, which would oh. have been a, a frog and a cat. And see, if this was now, yeah. I would have been oh. able to go to Dr. Barnard. I would have been able to. There, there's there are ways that yeah. you could learn things, you know, with with computers now. We and so. Yeah. Um, I couldn't do it. And so I basically, I, I don't want to say I flunked out of an Ivy League school, but I, I tried to change my major twice. <laughs> Here's the thing. I So I tried for a while to get into Wharton, the business school, and math is not my strong suit. There's, you know, people think I'm so talented because I do a few things that I've done forever well. Like I can cook, you know, I can, I can bake really well, for example, but um, math and business was like so hard for me, like account, accounting. And I mean, like, I mean, cause I was, here's the other thing I was, I, my mom always said, you like to be a big fish in a little sea rather than a little fish in a big sea. And so I was used to being a big fish in a little sea because in high school, I was like one of the, I mean, I was never like yeah. pretty, yeah. the thinnest or anything, but I was the funniest always. I mean, that was like, I was always class clown from the day I was born. I mean, that's what I really, here's the thing. That's what I really wanted to be was a comedian. And I'm kind of dipping back into it now, but I was always like the funniest, not that it was a competition. I wasn't trying to be the funniest in school, but it just, I, I mean, I found it kind of school was like so boring that in order to keep myself awake, I just I just would crack jokes. And the funny thing was, is I was also a straight A student. And so the teachers never knew what to do with me because <laughs> he was, even though I was somewhat of a behavioral problem, I was such a good student. And so we would get these grades. It was like three categories, the 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 grade, like which would be A, B, C, D, E, F. Then it was called work habits, like how well you do <laughs> it would be. Um, satisfactory, excellent, which was the highest, satisfactory, which was okay, and unsatisfactory, and cooperation. So excellent. And so the thing is, is I was, I would consistently get AEUs, A's for my work, <laughs> E for my work habits, and U for, that's how they punished me, because they knew, when I went to parochial school, Jewish school, Akiba, they would send me to the principal, and it's like, they, they, what, what are they going to do? You know, because maybe it was ADD, who knows, but I was just funny. And I remember when I, you know, and so they would vote every year class clown. That was me. And I remember, I think his name was Mr. Fred Carrington. He was, he got some kind of award in my high school, grant high school for being, you know, like one of the best teachers ever. 
and maybe it was him or Mr. Anderson, because I struggled. It turned out I was dyslexic and I didn't know it. Really? You know? Really? Yeah. I mean, I, and it's amazing. I got through college. It wasn't until I got through college when I became a professional note taker for a disabled person that the person turning it into, he goes, you know, you're dyslexic. And I'm like, I am because I, I knew that I always had trouble like with phone numbers and transposing it in words. Huh. So, so that's probably why um, I, I struggled so much with math and I had to have a tutor just to get through math. Like I always, I remember his name was Bill Geller. If you're watching this, hello, he was very smart. So, but, but I remember, you know, a lot of teachers telling me, you know, just, you know, just forget about the math, just go be a comedian. And I wish, you know, it, it makes me, it makes me sad now that I wish I had followed my heart and just done it because it's harder now in my sixties and not living in LA to, to, to try to, you know, to do it. But, but, the, but, the, but I wish if I had listened and not, not instead of trying to become what I thought I was supposed to become or what my parents wanted me to come, which of course was a doctor because we were Jewish uh, because I did have the raw talent back then, but I didn't have the, the experience of really doing it. But imagine if when I was 17, instead of going to the university of Pennsylvania, if I just went you know, really just threw my hat in the ring and really tried and, you know, went on the comedy circuit, you know, but uh, yeah, that, that, that was, that mm. was, uh, that was school for, oh, here's the other funny thing that, you know, I remember about school when I was in, I skipped fourth grade and I don't think skipping kids is a good idea because, um, because then you're younger emotionally than the other people. Oh, that maturity helps a lot. Yeah. And even so even though I might've been, yeah. might've been smarter, I wish I wasn't skipped because mm -hmm. I skipped the year that we learned handwriting. So I never learned handwriting mm -hmm. and I had a kind of, and I have terrible handwriting. I had to figure mm -hmm. it out. Nobody taught me handwriting because that was the year, at least in my school. So I had to kind of figure out how to do that. And I would really tear my, even my signature, I have terrible handwriting, but I remember, I believe it was, so it must've been fourth grade that I so, so it's fifth grade, Mrs. Bell. And she would tell me that if I could be quiet the whole class, she would give me a, buy me a Three Musketeers bar, and I did for candy. Heck, I would do that. <laughs> Anything for candy. This yeah. is not like the best way to deal with students, but hey, you know it was the '60s and the '70s, and uh, yeah. Boy, what an interesting story, and I, I just relate so much. You know, just that drive to be good at the things that I'm not naturally good at and ignore the things that I am naturally good at because I feel like they don't count or they're not worthwhile because they come naturally to me. So just trying to fit myself into some kind of box instead of finding a box that fit me. Yeah, I relate, relate very much. Yeah. And you and Doug Lyle have that in common about being the class clown, right? I he did was, not know he was class clown. That is he, amazing. He describes himself that way. Yeah, he says he was always cracking jokes. And you well, know, that do you want to hear something out. funny? I hope I don't think I'm telling tall tales out of school, but when I lived in LA, I was friends with a lady whose younger sister went to high school with Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. Lyle. And so I became with friends also with the sister and she would tell me stories about them. <laughs> that they, were, they were so smart that the teacher basically would say, just go play basketball. I'll give you an if you come to class, you know? Very interesting. Yeah, and what a key like window into their actual life because we hear the stories that they tell, but to have a friend who knew them then and get her perspective. And another story she told about Dr. Gold, because I love these two. They're my they're my favorites. They're like my 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 fake brothers, like the brothers I wish I had. 
And she tells a story, you know, Dr. Goldhammer is an amazing poker player. He probably could be a pro if he had the time and the inclination because he has, a, I mean, his whole face is a poker face. Like he yes, doesn't yes, have any emotion yes. ever. He is yeah. completely expressionless. And yeah. so you can never tell if he's bluffing. And when in the eight years that I worked there in the holidays, running the holiday extravaganza, we'd always have a poker tournament. And of course, he pretty much almost always won. And then one year, I don't know what <laughs> happened, I beat him. Oh. And Doug and everybody never lets him for, forget it. And I, that's how I want to <laughs> I have a True North sweatshirt. They sell these beautiful, uh, really comfortable, soft per- sweatshirts that come in purple and dark gray and gray. And I won it. And like, it, it's that was amazing. But but the, the <laughs> friend that told me the story, he played when he was younger. And, you know, he obviously had good habits since he was 16 and has never smoked or drank or you know, done drugs or even probably had a cup of coffee. And so yes, he played with some people and, you know, and, he, and they would say something like, well, do you mind if we smoke? And he'd go, no, but he had like this kind of electric fan that would just blow it like right back to him, you know? So <laughs> that's, that's Dr. Goldhammer. He's hilarious. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. All right. So um, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your weight loss journey, because obviously you have a very dramatic weight loss journey. Were you overweight as a kid? And was yes. that was that a struggle for you, a source of pain? Oh my God. Yes, it was. And you know, as dramatic as this journey was, because it happened over two years and I wasn't really in the public eye as much. It was like people, it wasn't like the biggest deal, like these people that are these influencers that are losing 70 pounds in a year and you know, going on TikTok. So I I mean, I can only remember my life from the age of four, but I know that I was fat at least from the age of five. Um, so that would have been about kindergarten. And I'm trying to think, I know that when I was 11 years, I mean, you know, as a kid, you don't really weigh yourself, right? Yeah. But the reason I know this is because when I was 11 and I moved to California from Chicago, I was separated from my parents for a couple of years. It's a long story, but I lived with an aunt and uncle who became my guardian. And in order for me to go to this school now, which would have been junior high, seventh grade, I guess I had to have a physical, you know, I I don't know, I I guess what they'd call it, I had had some kind of health check. Uh And that was part of my whatever. And so I remember them saying, you know, I weighed 160. Well, that didn't mean anything to me then because I kid. And but I know now that when I was five, five, six, which was my height before or five, six and a half before I broke my back, 160 is still technically obese. Well, I was only five feet tall then. So that's not good. Um, And I just, I remember, um, you know, I don't remember like really, I don't know if bullying was as prominent back then, but also remember Mm -hmm. I was so funny that kids liked me just because I cracked them up and I was kind of a reverend. I wasn't mean or anything to the teacher, but so, so I don't remember. And also most of the school was parochial Jewish Orthodox school. So they're not going to be doing that. But even when I got to public school, I don't remember people like being mean to me because of my Uh weight. I Uh do remember though, not getting asked to the prom. I do remember not having boyfriends, you know, that kind Uh of thing. Um, so, so that, that I remember, um, I do remember being shamed by PE teachers because, um, you, oh, we had to, it was so stupid. They, they made it so that really I didn't exercise again until I was like in my fifties because they were so mean, the female physical education teachers that they did the opposite of inspiring you to want to exercise, you know, and they were like, like what you see, like caricatures of like army drill sergeants. And I remember that we had to change into clothes for PE, uh, and, and PE, I, when, when PE became 
not mandatory in the state of California, I cheered. And I know that's not a good thing that they shouldn't have stopped it. But for me, it was just a source of humiliation mm -hmm. because I was too fat to do these things that we were like, it wasn't fun. It was like, we had to do these random things like climb a rope. I mean, how is that going to help you in life or do balance beams or do, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it made no sense. Like, like there, it wasn't really fitness, you know, it was mm -hmm. just random weird stuff, but we had to change into these really weird outfits with really short shorts. And, you know, I remember, you know, your thighs would be exposed and my, because I was so fat, my thighs would rub together and they would get chafed. And, you know, I remember the PE teachers, I, remember, I don't want to say their names. I, they're probably dead now, but you know, just, well, if you weren't so fat. So I do remember that. Oh. And I, remember my brothers weren't nice people and I do remember them saying like you know you're you know you, you know guys well it, what it, it, it wasn't what they said it's how they said it but it turned out it was true at least it was true in 1960 things have changed now but they said you know guys don't go out with fat girls well they didn't go out with fat girls and but yeah so I mean it wasn't great you know my mom believe it or not was morbidly obese and I was more uh, uh, embarrassed about her weight than mine. Because oh, interesting. Yeah, it's you know, funny how that happens where if you're close with someone who's who's very overweight, you think of them as the person with the issue. Right. Well, because I mean, I was fat, but yeah, she, she was, you know, um, like I said, I don't know, several hundred pounds. And, wow. and so so people... I don't, you know, like they would, you know, kids say something, well, your mother's so fat, you know, is she pregnant? Oh. You know, I right, mean, kids, you know, right. a lot of times kids are mean, but also kids just say what kids say. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it wasn't fun. Um, I remember, I remember, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert in eating disorders at all, but I remember, you know, my uncle who was my guardian and also a medical doctor said to me, you know, you're so fat, you could go a week without eating and that wouldn't hurt you one bit. Now we're not talking about a medically supervised therapy, <laughs> fast and true North, but so, you know, so I did that and I know that that became a vicious cycle of, of binge restrict repeat and things wow. like that. You know, wow. I, I, so you didn't I never, have any healthy supports. It didn't sound like around. Absolutely. Your, you know, I never, thank God. I'm, I'm so glad I never got involved in like these weighing and measuring programs because with my OCD, that would have probably driven me crazy. The only diet I ever remember trying other than just not eating for periods at a time, which would lead to binging. I did try the high protein diets. And this was obviously before I was vegan because, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't know how to do it now, but I remember there were doctors growing up. There were Scarsdale and Stillman were basic. Yeah. I never did Atkins, which was the high, you know, because I'm eating pork rinds. That sounded gross, but I do remember periods of just eating like a lot of just chicken and nothing else, you know, without the skin and, and losing weight. But, you know, yeah. it's, I mean, I never had the, I, nobody ever, people like doc, like doctors would say, you know, you're fat, but they never really would tell you what to do until yeah. I was 51 yeah. and I went to True North as a patient and they told me what to do and I did it and the rest is history. You know, that's what wow. I'm saying. Wow. You know, when, I mean, I, I wrote a book called The Secret to Ultimate Weight Loss. I think it's a pretty good book, but you know, if you want to lose weight and be healthy and reverse disease, I tell people five words, do everything Dr. Goldhammer says. And honestly- <laughs> I did that because I went there. He told me what to do. I did it. I didn't know about the thing, this ego trap or that it would be hard. It's like, he told me what to do. I did it, but I was also ready. You know, I was yeah. ready because yeah. I had, a, I had broken my knee. And so like people have different reasons for wanting to lose weight. And I always, the only reason I ever wanted to look what you lose weight really was to look better, you know, cause I really wasn't sick. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I 
I, I didn't have like any diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure or, you know, I didn't have a disease other than I was, I was overweight or obese actually. But when I broke my knee, when I was 50 years old, I, I had a slip and fall. They, I was in an office building and they didn't put the cone out and the whole thing was caught on video. So that was good because I, you know, I, I wasn't one of these people like pretending I was really a slip and fall. Yeah. So I went to the emergency room, um, they, they tried to give me crutches. And, you know, it was a broken knee. It was a very bad break. And I couldn't use them because I, I was just too fat. I really couldn't have, I didn't have the upper body strength. So then they tried to give me a walker. Well, I couldn't do it. And back then there's this new thing now, this, they have the coolest thing now, which if I, if they had it back then, I could have got things, it's called a leg up. It's like this, you've seen people with them. It's like this scooter where you yeah. put the broken leg or, you know, but yeah. that didn't actually, I don't know if that would have worked back then because the, the, I had to keep my knees straight with the brace. So I couldn't use the, the wheelchair, couldn't use the walker. And so guess what I was left with for four months, a wheelchair. Wow. And I didn't wow. like it because I couldn't, I, I lived in an apartment at the time. It wasn't oh. handicapped accessible. So, you know, things yeah. like showering, going to the bathroom, it was just embarrassing. And my husband had to help me. And, and I just really felt very bad about my situation and it made worse like, you know, when the doctors, <laughs> I love this doctors, you know, um, well, have you ever thought about losing weight? I'm like, and I wanted to smack them, but part of me wanted the comedian wanted to say, no, really? You, th you know, I mean, you know, like mad snappy right. answers, stupid questions. Right. But, but one right. thing he did say, and it did stick with me. And, and I realize now why even people that struggle to lose all the weight they want to lose, why losing any amount of weight, if you're struggling can be a benefit. He said, well, you know, every pound you're overweight is between five and 10 pounds of additional pressure to your knee. And that for some reason that just, it didn't, it, it didn't have like a moral judgment about me being fat. Mm -hmm. It was more like a mechanical mm -hmm. thing. Now it's like, Oh, because my knee really hurt. My knee really hurt. I was working as a pastry chef, which by the way, when you're a food addict, or I, I consider myself a, you know, a refined food addict, not, I don't believe you can be addicted to food. I don't even like the name of that. Not a great job. But I remember like I would, I would work, you know, you work long hours and you're on your feet and I'd come home and my left knee would be like this big and it oh. was hurting. And so I had a couple of surgical consults because it was something that could ostensibly be fixed with surgery. But having had an allergic reaction to anesthesia when I was actually twice, but the, the first one where I lacked, literally stopped breathing, I wasn't really wanting to do that, especially because one, they said we can't do it without a general anesthesia. But two, listen to this. This is what the doctor said, you know, because Dr. McDougall always says, ask them to show you the evidence. Will this procedure make me live longer or better? And this is exactly what both doctors said. Get this. Well, you're either going to get better, get worse, or stay the same. And I said, <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? If I don't do the operation, I'm either going to get better, get worse, or stay the same. But then the idea of of what the doctor said, well, if it if if this is really making it hurt more, if I weighed less, you know, would it hurt less? And yes, of course it does. And that's why people people say, well, you look better when you were 10 pounds heavier. And I'm like, well, that's your taste, but my knee disagrees because I know what my knee is capable of. And I, mm. my goal is to get to the end of my life without having to get my cataracts fixed or my knees fixed. And so if mm. I have to be a little bit more slender than you think is attractive so that my knee doesn't hurt. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Very yep. interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So you were much more 
practical and pragmatic than you know the aesthetic. Yeah, well, but I don't, I don't mind the aesthetic, and also I don't of like. Yeah. I mean, not that they don't have cuter clothes now for plus sizes, but I remember, you know, I think one of the hardest things about being fat as the kid, being well, first of all, I was the only fat kid up until college in every grade. Is every year I, I got fatter, I didn't fit into last year's clothes, and I, I it's funny because you were it's so funny you remember things that people say to you, or at least I do, and especially the, the, the least kind things. And I remember, you know, my mom was morbidly obese. So she, the only store she shopped at was called Lane Bryant's. Yeah. Um, so the, there was a sales lady, I don't know if it was maybe between second and third grade. And, you know, I guess she remembered me from the year before. And so she literally said to me, she goes, you know, if you get any fatter, you're going to have to stop shop it. And she called it Lane Giants instead of Lane Bryant's. And so, yeah, people, people can, oh, here's the other thing. It's so funny. And I got to learn to let this shit go and actually have a book by that title because I still remember <laughs> the, but I had this doctor named Dr. Charles Goldenberg when I was six years old, had 106 fever. And uh, my grandfather was my doctor because he was a medical doctor, but he was on vacation out of the country. So this other doctor came to my house and I was under the cover shivering and he was my cousin, Betsy's doctor. Betsy was four years older and very petite. And so he flips the covers off and he shrieks and he goes, oh, my God, your thigh is the size of Betsy. And it's like, you know, so I knew, you know, knew as a young person that being larger than other people weren't good. It wasn't good. My grammar wasn't. Yeah. So I have a lot of I have a lot of. I know, I know Dr. Lyle doesn't believe in trauma, but I got to tell you, it feels like I like it to me. Yeah. And also Dr. Lyle is a very emotionally stable person. I'm less emotionally stable. And so I feel like I'm, I'm just stickier. Things stick to me longer and, and harder than maybe they do to somebody like him, maybe for someone like him, who's super emotionally stable or like Dr. Goldhammer, you know, things just yeah. roll up. You, roll up you cannot insult Dr. Goldhammer. That's the right. thing about him. I, I wish I had that because I'm too sensitive right. and I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Elaine Aaron, uh, the work of the highly sensitive person, but, yeah. uh, you know, but it's just, it's yeah. hard being a sensitive person and, you know, in an insensitive world. But I think yeah. a lot of vegans probably are because I think it's because of our high sensitivity that makes it want to not want to harm animals and there's really yep. no way to eat them without them. you know it's different if i yeah. don't know an animal died in front of you and you were starving but i don't know how you can eat animals without harming them really I, exactly I yeah you can't i think you and i can both can both agree yeah. on that one yeah it was funny because i was at vegan summer fest last summer and there was a workshop that was conducted by harold brown and lee hall on activism for sensitive people <laughs> sensitive vegans yeah, so, that that, that would, would have been very beneficial which is why i can't yeah. be on the front lines i learned early on when i you know started doing activism and i was with uh, this group last chance for animals that i couldn't do the direct action i couldn't be the one mm -hmm. to break into the lab and, mm -hmm. and go to jail mm -hmm. i couldn't be the you know and i can't I, mm -hmm. I always say the people that are in animal rescue they're my heroes because to have to deal with that on a daily basis and animals that get turned in and you know i mean they're my real heroes because that to me you you, you know it, it's so hard you know like going on yeah. youtube every day or making cooking videos well it's yeah. it's not, for me it's not hard and it's kind of fun but to yeah. have to Feel activism and and even like you know going to pig vigils or protesting circuits. It's it's not that I don't care. It's just I can't see 
that. I can't see yeah. Earthling. How's yeah. it going to help? How does that help me anyway if I'm a blubbering yeah. mess to do my job? But I'm yeah. grateful. What I'm saying is I'm grateful that those people do what they do. Um, you know, but I got to do what what what's going to make me um, yeah more effective. You know, we really have to know ourselves and accept ourselves. Like I really, it sounds so cliche and so trite, but I really have come to feel that that's. That's the only path that's ever going to work for us. You know, if we try to be something different from what we are, it's just not going to work. Well, it's um, life so, lessons. Back to me should have been a comedian. You know, it's like, yeah, it, you know, you're right. But, but it's just, we spend so much time trying to please people that don't yeah. matter. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say the obvious thing that it's not too late. And I'm sure you are doing things in that realm. So I, oh, I am. I'll ask you about it now rather than. Yeah, now. I am. It, the thing is, is, it's so funny because my whole life in LA, I, I had the time to do all these classes. But I didn't have the money. They were so expensive, you know, like $500 when you are living paycheck to paycheck to take a, you know, yeah. comedy class is a lot. Yeah. And now I have both, I have the time and the money, but I'm not in LA where there's, there, there are some classes, uh -huh. but it's not the same opportunities, you know, yeah. to be in plays, to be in shows, to, yeah. it's not that it's impossible. Yeah. But it's, you know, so I it feel, I feel like, you know, whenever my ship comes in, I'm at the airport, like, I, like my whole life is going to maybe being at the wrong place at the, at the wrong time. But that doesn't mean I can't enjoy doing it. And I love doing it. It's just, it's so fun. And it's like, I wonder like, how come, you know, it's funny, you know, you know what I have, and this is Dr. Lyle tells me this all the time, you know, about that egocentric bias. Yeah. I, I totally have that because it's like, and I'm like Linda Middlesworth. It's like, why isn't everyone vegan? You know, I don't get right. it. You know, right? But it's like, right. why doesn't everybody do improv comedy? It's right. so fun. So, so that's just kind of, you know, I, I I'm yeah. sort of. Well, I've had a few guests on my show recently who are in the comedy world. One is a comedian and filmmaker and podcaster named Graham Elwood, who of course is a vegan, and then another woman named Delaney Fisher who, you know, for a long time was a stand-up comic. So you're, you're not alone. You're in very good company. Um, but yeah, finding the time for all of these worthwhile endeavors, especially when you have your jam-packed schedule. I don't know how you do everything that you do. I know. And I'm, I'm getting, so, so January 1st, I made, I'm not sure I said January 1st, I am taking two days a week off. I don't know. I, like, here's the thing. I'm self-employed. This is the weirdest thing. <laughs> I'm my own boss, but apparently my boss is a real slave driving <laughs> making me work seven days a week what happened Chrissy is I I wasn't really a YouTuber so to speak I had a YouTube channel I put videos up here and there you know it wasn't like my source of income or just it's just something I did and then when the pandemic hit or at least I, I guess we didn't know yet that for sure there was a pandemic but where I my governor in my state on March 20th, 2022, ordered this sheltering in place. I didn't know what the heck that was. All I knew is all my jobs were canceled, like, you know, to go on, you know, I, I was doing um, events, you know, I mean, I would use to speak at places like Vegetarian Summerfest or the Cruz or Rancho La Puerta. I would just travel almost every week and everything was like for about, I guess it was about two years. And so I, I had, I'm not very tech savvy with computers and phones. And I was using this new technology called Restream, where you can go live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at the same time. And I didn't know how to use it correctly. And I thought I was going live in my private Ultimate Weight Loss Facebook group, just like, hey, guys, how you doing? Let's check in. Is everybody okay? 
So it ended up going live all the places. And there was like 600 people watching. And at that time, people didn't know what the pandemic was or you know, yeah. people were scared. Yeah. People were just, and so they wanted a sense of connection. And so I started just going live, not thinking it was going to be a job or a source of income, just like, hey, everybody doing, what do you want to talk about? But then after a few times, it was like, Ugh, I, you know, like I'm looking at myself as I'm looking at you because I'm on Zoom and I'm like, I'm getting tired of seeing myself talk. And I, so I, I don't know why Nikki Davis was the first one I contacted, but I contacted Nikki Davis. I think I remember Nikki Davis. She's just lovely. I, she's lovely. You got to have her on your show. She's, okay. Okay. You know, I, I, well, I love her for so many reasons. I got to hang out with her for a week at the Plant Tradition Project. She's like dropped dead gorgeous. Like she could have been a model, but she became a doctor because she wanted people to be vegan. She was already a rocket scientist. But anyway, she was doing an internship at True North. And I don't know if she contacted me or whatever, but I said, well, would you just go live with me? You know, and so we went live with her for a couple of days. And all of a sudden I started getting emails. Can I be on your show? And I'm like, I don't have a show. I don't have a show. And so then it, it got to be where, okay, I have a show. And I called it Chef AJ Live and went live at the same time. So I've done over 1800 episodes and I've done it every single day. And I still have like, you know how long it took you to get on my show. It can take a year because this year it was, it, what was hard about it? It was great. I loved it because even if I went back to my former life of traveling, I would not have met the amount of people I met now because realistically, I probably wouldn't have met all the wonderful doctors in India from the mm -hmm. Indian Medical Association, or all the doctors in Australia, mm -hmm. or just people around the world because yeah. I wasn't going to foreign countries for the most yeah. part. So yeah. I met some amazing people. I forged a lot of friendships. And it was really wonderful. But what was happening is because I was booking six months in advance, people would sometimes tell me, and this even happened two hours before I can't come on. And it's like, well, now what am I going to do? So right. Robert, Robert Cheek is wonderful. He's, you, he's, you would love to interview him. And he has he a book. Is, in fact, I'm, yeah, I've, I've talked to him. He it was working on a book. And so he had to postpone, but he, he is going to come on my show at some his point. His book is coming out in June and I'm sure he's going to want to go on podcasts to promote it. I'll and have to reach out to him again. Yeah, he's, he's a good friend of mine and I can help you with, I, I mean, I don't okay, say thank you, but, yeah. but I know, I know thousands of people I know so you people, do yeah people would cancel the last yeah. minute so Robert would be my go-to guy uh -huh. so I said to you know I I said you know I have a virtual employee and I said that we got to have another system because it's too hard because she was the one that was sending out the newsletter who was going to be on and mm -hmm. so I sent out this email and this is way before I uh and I said does anybody want to do a regular show and I couldn't believe how many people applied, like a hundred. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. That's, wow. And I've been, and, I've been and the people, people were saying, you know, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. It's going to harm your views and the same person, but people seem to be loving it because I got really good guests like yeah. Dr. Lyle, the first Tuesday of the month, yeah. like yeah. Dr. McDougal, the first Monday of the month. And so it's, it's just been wonderful and I love it. However, I have to start taking two days off. And so what I decided to do and, you know, I thought, well, I'll, I'll take two random days off. But no, you know, unfortunately, the way the world is, is most people take Saturday, Sunday off. And if I want to be with the rest of the world, <laughs> yeah. what I'll do is I still will have my show be seven days a week, but Saturday and Sunday shows will be pre-recorded. And so I'll find okay. guests, guests yeah. in India 
that, that can't really do it anyway. And so uh -huh. that's, that's what I do, but I do, I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm like so honored that people watch the show and I'll get these emails like from people. And sometimes like I'll have a show and you'll say, Oh, it only has a couple thousand views. And it's like, you know, I, and I don't care. And then these people will say, well, because of your show, I got like, this actually happened today. A doctor saw me on your show and hired me. That's happened to somebody. I mean, so people, you know, it, it's fun because I kind of see myself is kind of a cross between the vegan Oprah and the vegan Don King, because mm -hmm. I, I basically love mm -hmm. promoting vegans. And the show actually mm -hmm. says every day, hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ. And this is where I introduce you to amazing people who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. And most of these guests happen to be vegan. It's not a prerequisite, but uh, it just so happens that, that those are most of the guests that want to come on. Yeah, and I will say that I love your show. I remember early on when everything locked down and nothing nothing much was happening. I remember when you really kicked into high gear with your show and that meant so much to me at the time because I got just this intense dose of all these people that I really can't get enough of. You know, I could listen to Doug Lyle, you know. Oh yeah, he's, he's the I, best. I, I yeah, what is it? What is it? I mean, I'm going to ask you this because I feel the same way, but what is it about his approach and evolutionary psychology that is just so fascinating. You know, I'm not sure if it's the evolutionary psychology part, although I find that extremely interesting. Yeah. yeah. I feel, and because I'm not, you know, I live when I live near him now, by the way, so you get to see him, which is amazing. And, and before that, I worked with him just as a, I don't know if you want to call it a patient, or I feel like more like it's not, he doesn't really do therapy in the way, like, tell me about your mother. He's just so smart. And the way yeah. he... I feel like that that song from Sound and Music, nobody solves a problem like Doug Lyle. Yeah. And, you can, and, and, you and he tries to solve problems. Like he doesn't just try to make you feel better about your problems. He really he tries doesn't. to solve them. And he looks at things in such a different way from what would naturally occur to me that I just find it so helpful. And it's almost like, you know, I begged him, I said, can we do sessions, not with me, but somebody on the show? Because it's almost like, he always talks about backing up the camera, for example. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it, it, he, he sends me to somebody else for the therapy where you just cry and talk. That's not who he is. If you want yeah. that, that's not your person. <laughs> you a problem, like a life problem, like yeah. you don't know a career or if you should keep your job or your marriage or yeah. really I think where he excels is difficulty in relationships. He just, I don't know how he does it because it, it, he, like, I'm always amazed in, in, in my husband. It's so funny because my husband always is there for the session. Like, I'll go, do you want to talk to Doug? You want to have a session? No, but he's always seems to be in the room when he's talking. And, he's and you feel notes. comfortable doing a session? Oh, yeah, yeah. Unless it was about him, then I would, you know, but it's usually yeah. like about some problem with work or a colleague or a uh -huh. family member. Uh -huh. And I don't know how he just figures stuff out. I've never yeah. seen anybody yeah. like do what he does. And right. I'm all, and it's almost like there's nothing he doesn't can't figure out in terms of uh -huh. a problem. Like, like, so, uh -huh. so if you're just want to, if you're just looking for somebody to cry and bitch to, it, it, he's not the, the man for you, but if you want a solution yeah. and that's why is, is you don't need him for therapy because really for him, depending on the problem, he's like a one and done, right. you know, 
have so right. many problems. I, I keep coming back. And, you know, sometimes I'll book sessions like, like on my birthday where like, it's not about a problem. Like I'll just ask him like, why is this, this, and why is this, this, like, just, ex just explain yeah. stuff to me. And, and I, I just find him honestly, the most interesting and fascinating person to talk to, but also Dr. Goldhammer too. Like Dr. Mm -hmm. Goldhammer is so interesting too, like in a different way, he doesn't solve problems the same way Doug does, but he's very smart. And I guess I just, I just like smart people. Yeah, yeah. See, I've never talked to Dr. Goldhammer. I know of him. And so I feel like I know him. I hear so many stories about him from everybody in my circles, but I've never met him or talked to him. Whereas I've, I've gotten to know um, Dr. Lyle a bit. And I'm, as I think, you know, I'm in grad school for clinical mental health counseling. And so Dr. Lyle has promised to, you know, mentor me in my counseling work going forward and train me to be helpful to people rather than just to be, you know, a place for people to cry. So that yeah. means a lot to me. Um, but, so I wanted to ask, um, we, we've covered so much and, and you're so fun to talk to that we could, we could talk about a zillion different things, but I am very curious to hear. So you obviously met your husband, Charles, a, a long time ago, and you were, were you vegan when you met him and was he yeah. vegan? And no, he you were was, overweight yeah. when you met him. Yeah, I know. That's why. And I wonder like, why did you marry me? You know, I must've been, and he, the thing is, is he does comedy too. And so I, I have to get, he must've married me just because I was so damn funny and entertaining. <laughs> uh, you know, let's see. So we met uh, the after Thanksgiving in 1992. So I was 32, which means I would have been vegan. I'm so bad at math, 17 I don't 15 years. Yeah. How did you, how did you meet and where did you meet? Yeah. So this is a, this is a great story uh, for those of you that are, are looking for a partner that don't have one. So this was, I well, love I'm this in that category. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the thing. So it's about a little bit about going outside your comfort zone and being a risk taker. So this was 1992 and I, at the time was in college I, cause I went to college late, it took me about, see, I'm a late bloomer. Okay, I didn't, you left, you left Penn and then you yeah, went I back left to Penn. Yeah, I got, I, oh, that's another story became anorexic. Oh, okay. I left Penn. It took me about uh, 18 years to get my BA. <laughs> it's a really? little, very long really? college education, but I went to, I was going to Cal State University Northridge. I was a speech communications major and I was a marketing minor. I wanted to be, I thought I wanted to be an advertising copywriter because I could use my sense of humor coming up with funny huh? slogans. Very competitive job. It's almost like being in show business. It's so hard to get a job doing that. And anyway, so I was taking uh, classes like, uh, you know, in marketing, like, like outside of my college, just like, you know, we had this thing called like the learning annex back in LA, these fabulous classes that were taught by like top people. And I remember it was the head of the BBDO, a creative director of this, of this advertising agency was talking, teaching a class on how to break into advertising, kind of like how to break into show business. Now this was 1992. So we didn't have Craigslist back then. We had um, something called the, the, the newspaper, LA times. And at the Sunday Times, there would be like want ads. You could look for a job there. And I remember, I can't even remember his name, but I remember him saying, you know, to get a job at my agency or at any good advertising agency, you're not going to find a, the job in the want ad description. He goes, you have to become the kind of person that people want to hire, that would attract, that we want to attract. And, he, and then I don't know why he said this. He said, but similarly, if you're a woman in this was in the 90s, 
You're not going to sit around and wait for a guy to ask you on the phone. You have to take action and become the kind of person that that guy wants. I can't remember exactly, but it was amazing because that was the same year that Time Magazine had a cover saying that if you're a woman in your 30s, you have less chance of getting, you have more chance of being kidnapped by an, uh, by an Iranian or Iraqi terrorist than getting married. So I just figured I'm screwed. I'm never getting married. And I was going to actually go to Carnegie Mellon. I had applied because my acting teacher was there. So then what happened is November of that year, I'm always, I'm one of these people that is not a procrastinator and I'm married to one. But so I always did a holiday card with me and whoever my dog was at the time. My dog was named Scooby, Scooby-Doo. And so we do a cute little card and I always got them out the weekend after um, actually like right around Thanksgiving. Cause I always wanted to be the first one. Like I'm not sending you a card because you sent me a card <laughs> to show. I really like you. I'm sending you a card. So I had a, there was a teacher, her name was Elaine and she actually is quite well-known uh, for baking Elaine's bakery. She's my, now my sister-in-law. And she, I sent her the card of me and Scooby. And she sent me a card back with a huge family on it, like lots of brothers and sisters, older people, like parents, children, young people. There was just a card. And there were two guys on the card that were extremely good looking and they had really, really long hair. And luckily I picked the single one because Lawrence, my brother-in-law. Do you like long haired guys? Well, no, I don't actually, but, but he, they were handsome. You know, I no, not, I mean, I, I don't like long haired guys. <laughs> let me put it this way. I don't dislike long haired guys, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but I like guys with facial hair and now Charles has a beard, <laughs> but anyway, luckily I picked the correct one. And so I said, he was the taller of the two. And I said, uh, I remember, I guess I called her. I don't think we had email or at least I didn't. And I said, who is this guy? And, <laughs> oh. and he's good looking and, and I his number. And he goes, oh, she goes, really? yeah, I know. I can't believe I, cause it's not like I had a history of doing this, but for some reason, what that guy said about taking action and the women in the nineties uh-huh. just got me thinking, well, what have uh-huh. I got to lose? So he goes, uh-huh. she goes, my brother, Charles, and I'll ask him. So she asked him and, you know, can I give this girl your phone number? And so I remember, I can't believe I did this because, you know, if I had, I just say this because ladies are not, doesn't have to be ladies, people that are trying to, um, but I think historically women tend to be a little bit more timid and wallflowerish when yeah. for the, when make the first move. Uh, you know, if you, if you know, if you, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. And so I called him up and I remember I was like, thank God, like for answering machines back then. Cause if he answered, I probably would have hung up. And I said, hi, if you're as, if you are as nice in person as you are good looking on this photo, I'd like to meet you. And then the rest really is history. So how I long, say, how long did it take you to craft that message? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> I remember that right after I left it, I was going out of town and I had it on my answering machine because I got really nervous about it. And so we met and, um, you know, I remember it's like, you know, my clock was ticking and I remember saying something, I, I mean, maybe I, 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 I don't, I mean, you'll have to ask Charles and unfortunately he's not home right now. I mean, I might've said something to him, like, you know, if we're not married in a year, forget it. Or, oh, I, I mean, really? I just, I can't, I don't, I don't know if I'm that bold anymore, but you know, and I said something to the effect of, you know, if we did get married, I go, I'm vegan. I go, you can do whatever you want. Um, but if we get married, the wedding's vegan and the kids are vegan and the house is vegan. I mean, I set the stage early on and I think the problem, and I see this in a lot of people that I, I don't work personally with people, but sometimes I still do in groups 
is that often what happens is they become vegan so much later in the marriage. It's very yeah. hard to get the change. Very hard. Yeah. They, yeah. I said that right away. Like, like now it's interesting because I, 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 I mean, one of my biggest prayers is that I die before Charles. So I'm never looking to get married again. But like, if I did, I, I mean, I would not go out with somebody that's not vegan anymore. That's not, now it would be a deal breaker. But when I was 32, I, you know, he had other good qualities. I, and so I overlooked it. And I just said, though, th these are the rules, you know, house is vegan, kids are vegan, weddings mm -hmm. vegan, you do what you want. And the mm -hmm. thing is, um, he didn't seem to mind. And also, you know, I was always a pretty good food preparer, good cook. I, I hadn't gone to culinary school yet, but um, I knew how to make things tasty. And um, yeah, it, luckily it worked out. And you know, it's funny because, it, you know, it, nothing I did ever made anybody become vegan until like, well, actually, since I, you know, the weight loss hook, that was the only thing that ever worked. I mean, I would go, I would go, I would do these tables and I would have, you know, pictures of animals that were being vivisected on at UCLA, like one person, maybe this one young kid, but it was like, it really wasn't until really forks over knives, you know, really revolutionized this idea that, you know what, it's actually good for you. There's something in it for you, but it was 2001 and my sister and my husband heard Dr. McDougall speak and they became vegan the next meal. So thank you, Dr. Really? McDougall. So your husband, so Charles was not vegan for most of the time that- No, he wasn't vegan. And the thing is, is he already, he was always slender, but he was already getting this thing from the doctor like, hey, you know, you're starting to put on a little weight. Hey, your cholesterol's really high. You know, hey, you got to be on medicine now for reflux. There was little things happening, not major things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was, and then having these little, little, also, my, Charles is very highly, con you know, intelligent, conscientious. And so when you have a person like that that's presented with the information, you know, magic can happen. Right. On it. right. Right. And so, I'm just curious though, you know, because as someone who struggles with, you know, compulsive overeating for a long time, I felt so uncomfortable in my body when I was when I was not healthy and when I was overweight. So I'm yeah. I'm amazed that you were able to enter into a healthy relationship with a really, you know, great person and be I know I cried a lot. I mean, I cried a lot and I God, I wish I was here and I would ask him because I would say, Why'd you marry me? I was so fat. Um, but you how know, fat, I get, how fat were you? Like how overweight well, were you? I mean, I weighed, I mean, like, you know, okay, and I'm like well, 110 now ish, and I probably weighed, I, I don't think I weighed any less. 165 was probably the lowest wow. weight when I was older. Wow. So, so, you know, I was like a size 16 and, and, and uh -huh. so, um, I think, I think I might've carried it a little bit. I think I might've carried it well, but like, if you don't believe me, you know, you know, people, people will say to me, like, you know, you don't know how hard it is because you weren't that fat. I don't think people understand that, that it, it's not, it's not a contest about who is the fattest and suffers the most. If you don't feel good about yourself and there are people exactly. that are not overweight that don't, but the, exactly. the is, it's like, it's so funny. Cause I was um, going to be having Dr. Joel Furman on my show. Sue. So I was looking something up when he was on the show, he came on and I looked at, if you look at these old videos, I'm, I was a big person. I was, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Um, maybe because you've been overweight for a, a lot of your life, maybe you were just more functional and just more, more used yeah, to it. Yeah. Cause I was used to it because I didn't, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I, I like since you've never of, really been thin. So, I, 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 well, no, except for like a couple of, you know, bout of anorexia. No, but, yeah. and, and that was just like, yeah. So, so I mean, I didn't, you know, I, 
I, it was mostly like when I was looking in the mirror or naked or, you know, uh-huh. like having to go to the beach, you know, and I, I cried a lot, but I, I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I just really thought because everybody in my family was fat, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I mean, grandparents and, you know, uncles and, uh, you know, mother, you I any just, other sisters. Yeah, one sister and my sister was fat too, you know, I mean, she's not, she became vegan and she's not now. Um, So, and my brother was morbidly obese and the other one was quite over. I just, just kind of figured that genetics, I just, Uh so I, it wasn't like something that I, I just kind of like resigned myself. Like, I I mean, that's why I'm so, I guess I'm kind of happy that I was able to do it because I know that it's hard. I, I didn't know how hard it was. Like if I had gone, right. <laughs> if I had gone to True North as a patient. The funny thing is I did not go there to lose weight. I went there because I was on psychiatric medicine that was given to me when my baby died and I couldn't get off it. Well, it turned, I, I, I did finally get off it working with Dr. Lyle, but I couldn't get off there at, at True North in January of 2011 because you can't fast on psychiatric medicines and you they can't just pull you off. But somehow Dr. Goldhammer like got inside my brain and like, he never said you're fat and disgusting. You know what? You know, he said something to the effect of like, you know, you're very talented. You know, you're a really good chef. You know how to hyper concentrate sugar, fat and salt, blah, blah, blah. And he said something that was something like, you know, but if, if, if you had a little weight off you, you know, you would like rule the, he just, he said something like Tom Sawyer whitewashing the fence. He made it <laughs> like, not that you're terrible like you are uh-huh. and you need uh-huh. to fit to some norm but he said you know as a is a powerful vegan like i don't i don't think he even remember saying it but he said something like mm-hmm. put a positive spin on it mm-hmm. and so if i went mm-hmm. into this knowing like about i hadn't read the pleasure trap yet and if i knew like how hard it was and how many you know i was yeah. just basically okay tell me what to do and he kind of did and dr lyle did and i don't know maybe because i had a supportive husband in a clean environment Mm-hmm. it wasn't I mean it wasn't that it was like super easy at first you know you have cravings and stuff but it wasn't that hard so but I I do feel proud of myself that I was able to pretty much you know reinvent myself and my body and and like I've, I've been slender a long time now so now that is my norm you know yeah. and I do feel better in my body I it do, you do feel I feel I want to say you do because some people might feel okay heavier but like like I I got a bad knee and my knee will tell me if it's raining and if, if I'm gaining weight, you know, so. Right. right. Yeah. So how, how was it? How long did it take for you to reinvent yourself and your body? The funny thing, I wasn't doing YouTube or, you know, there was no Instagram or TikTok. I wasn't like one of these people showing you what I ate or how I lost weight. I was kind mm-hmm. of just doing it quietly, living my life. And it took 27 months to lose the first 47 pounds. 27 months mm-hmm. most people would give up if they knew it took that long mm-hmm. it doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's going to take that long for everyone but I was unmedicated hypothyroid and I was menopausal or you know or post I don't know where exactly what, what that was but mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't doing it like that I like I had no number in mind or no size in mind or no goal it was just I was just eating the way that I was instructed to eat by Dr. Goldhammer, you know, mm-hmm. sugar, oil, flour, alcohol, salt, caffeine-free, whole food, plant-based, using principles of calorie density, low mm-hmm. fat. And, you know, it's just, I felt so good mentally too, because um, not having, you know, caffeine or, pro, you know, just, I, I was like, I remember when I lost the first, so it was, I think the last known weight that I have at True North, which was January 
2011 because they have my chart was 165. And I, I, I remember I had gotten down to, because I wasn't weighing myself. I didn't have a scale, but like you go to the doctor and they weigh you. So I had gotten down to 140, which is 30 pounds more than I weigh now. I was no longer obese. I was a size 10. And I remember going to an animal rights event and Brian Wendell, the producer of Forks Over Knives was there. And th this is the first time people saw me, those 25 pounds, people were like, oh my God, you look great. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. I do. I couldn't fit into this dress before. And I remember saying to myself, or, you know, this is fine. I don't need to lose any more weight. I, I feel fine. I'm just going to keep eating this way. And mm -hmm. the thing is, is because I'm not a person that is prone to relapse, I had one. Um, I, the calendar just, I just, this is, uh -huh. this is what happens. I was, you know, so I'm like, like, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying if, if you can do it and you stick yeah. with it, the results really will, you know, but it's not an overnight thing. It, I was right. losing at some point, you know, probably, a, you know, I don't know, like a half a pound a month. I, but mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't like monitoring it, you know, and I wasn't, yeah. I yeah. So, so that was my story and and it, it can happen to other people. Some people can lose much more quickly, but that wasn't, I wasn't in a race. I wasn't trying to get to a reunion or a wedding. I was just, well, this is the way that you eat for health, for brain mm -hmm. stability and not to have mm -hmm. cravings, not to. And so I just kept doing it. And over time, the results paid off, you know, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. It sounds like you had in mind, like, this is just how I eat now. This is how I eat for the rest of my life. And then the way yeah, and, and I enjoy it though. That's the yeah. thing. And people, yeah. and people are, you know, again, back to the mean people on social media that <laughs> criticize me and hurt my feelings. They uh, make it, they make it sound like, you know, I've got an eating disorder and, and it's so austere and draconian. I love right. the I eat. I really do love eating, you know, yeah. that delicata squash or the Hannah yam with vegetables. I, I love it. Yeah. Like that's what yeah. I want to eat. It's not because I'm trying to be thin. It's like this food, especially the way I make it, it's delicious. It's so good. And I know it's good. And I know it's conducive to weight loss because in 2019, I used to, my husband and I occasionally teach business classes to help people either if they want to get a book out or do better on social media. We don't do it a lot, but we get asked occasionally. And so we thought like, well, let's devise a business class and let's, you know, let's be the person that does it. And we, we had this great idea and we did this test business class with four people that were trying to have plant-based businesses and we didn't charge. And we said, you just have to get to the desert, rent your own Airbnb but I'll do the rest. And it was like from Saturday of one week to Sunday of the other. And I said, I'll make all your meals. <laughs> it wasn't a weight loss class. It wasn't a food uh -huh. addiction. Class. Uh -huh. We just, food, we just fed on what we ate, you know, which was delicious. Uh -huh. food. You know, there was desserts like jam bars. We just, and the thing is, is people were like, they, they were different sizes from, you know, like, you know, like petite, they, they, they were all different sizes. Some yeah. maybe had a few yeah. to lose, some didn't. And they were all like, Oh my God, there's so much food. We can't have dessert every day, let alone every meal. And I'm like, look, just eat what you want. This is what we eat. But right. you know, of course they ate it. And then after the class was over, they all had lost weight. I mean, I wasn't, it was a business class. They Amazing. loved the food. Amazing. It was delicious. I, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I basically cooked recipes from my book and had, and, mm -hmm. and so I'm like, you know, if people had the opportunity to actually sit with me, like that was my dream. I almost bought a house with a casitas just for that. I, th I think they would love the food and they would have the results, but I think they're, mm -hmm. you know, they, they go out too much. They, they too much wanting to eat at restaurants and things like that. Yeah. But uh, we have people here all the time that love the food that we make and we have potlucks. And even if, even, you know, sometimes we'll do a little bit richer stuff for them, you know, a little uh -huh. bit higher. 
density, but even the lower fat, low calorie density food, people love it. And if they don't love it, then that's because they're eating such a high calorie dense diet full of sugar, fat, and salt that they just can't appreciate how good the food tastes. Right, right. Well, it, you make it you make it all just seem so appealing. And of course, I, I live in that world, but um, I don't get to eat you know your food on a regular basis. How long? And I'm not going to keep you too much longer because you've been so generous with your time. I don't mind. It's, it's fun, fun talking to you. It's fun to talk to you. Yeah, I never yeah, get to I talk about it. this stuff. It's like all people want me to talk about is food addiction and calorie density. Right, right, just, right. I feel like I wrote a book about that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, but thank you for asking me funner questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what to me, that's what this podcast is all about is getting to know people on a personal level and just just getting to know them as humans, because I feel like sometimes when experts have so much knowledge and so much wisdom, it makes sense that people want to hear that. But we, we can sometimes just look at them as almost a product or a resource and forget that no, they're actually people with story. And I, I love hearing the stories and the human aspect of people's journey. Um, because everyone, everyone's been through things you know going being vegan in this not yet vegan world is is tough and it's challenging and we're often sensitive people like you mentioned um so it's yeah it's it's interesting it's a wonderful journey and i love it and i know you love it too but it's it's not always easy so nope. um so how long did it take you to learn to prepare food that was delicious was that hard have you always loved no it? i always i well i mean it was always delicious to me so i've always prepared food that was delicious i started mm -hmm. with easy bake oven when i was seven so i learned <laughs> to cook early on so i that mm -hmm. was never problem. And with the sugar, fat, and salt, you know, getting rid of the oil was so easy. I did that while really? I was still, yeah. Because the, when you get rid of the oil, like the food tastes off. Like sometimes yeah. I can tell that it's, it's a recipe that all they've done is take out the oil and I, it doesn't taste right. Well, I remember getting rid of oil on August 1st, 2008, after hearing Dr. Esselstyn speak, and mm -hmm. I didn't do it to lose weight, even though it does help you lose weight. Yeah. It was he was talking about being bulletproof against heart disease and people yeah. in my family died of heart disease. I found that at the beginning, though, see, I was still overweight. I wasn't doing a low fat, more McDougal diet. I was using higher caloric density, things like nut seeds, avocado, and tofu so that the, you, you mm -hmm. didn't really miss the oil. So that wasn't, mm -hmm. that wasn't a problem for me taking out the oil. Right, uh, right. Out the sugar was super easy because I could use fruit and dates. Salt is and was the harvest. That is and I was see. the harvest. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Do you have any particular tips or tricks for, you know, lowering the salt or getting rid of the salt? Yeah. Well, one great thing is to go to True North and fast. <laughs> you taste Which food. you've done recently, correct? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was so fun because I already liked the food, but after the fast, it was like, Ramses, you're really a good chef. And he is. And I'm like, this is delicious. And they made me this soup because I have a sensitive gut of literally just potato and zucchini. And I oh. love it. And they give it to me every day before lunch and dinner because fasting kind of gave me like a little bit of a tummy gurgles. And I just still eat it every day. And it's like, it's got nothing in it. There's no seasoning. And it's like, I can taste really? it. It's oh. so good. I have a video on my YouTube channel of, of, of Chef Bravo making it. And then I figured out how to do it even easier in the Instant Pot. Absolutely delicious. I've even served it to company. So with salt, it's like, here's the thing, like people say, I want to use less of something, but then they keep using it. You got to sometimes mm -hmm. pull the bandaid off and stop using it at all. And then mm. you don't require it as much. But I love the spices at local spicery, salacious, um, bada bing, bada boom, 
um, sumac, uh, Benson's table tasty. There's there's fresh herbs and spices. So there's okay. ways to, make, to zhuzh up the food to make it good without salt. I think salt is the laziest way to season. The more salt you eat, the more salt you want, and the more food you eat because it can it, uh, it stimulates passive overconsumption. So if you're trying to you know slim down, it's not something that's great. But I, I don't, I'm not perfect. I eat salsa with salt because I'm too lazy to make it. But uh -huh. uh, salt salt's the hardest for sure. I mean, that's what yeah. yeah, that's the only one that I still have in my repertoire. Like I, I don't use oil and I really don't, you know, don't have sugar in the in the house. But yeah, salt is one that I haven't totally. Salt is hard. So Oil's is a, a great to get thing. off of oil. I mean, sugar will probably always taste good, I'm imagining. Yeah. But once you get off of oil, it does not sit well, I'll tell you. Everybody. Yeah, oil was something that never, never made sense to me before I went vegan and before I saw forks over knives and, and learned what I know now. I thought, I thought that I should make myself eat some olive oil. I thought, I thought it was bad not to have oil. So it was very validating for me when I saw forks over knives and, and learned that no, it's actually inflammatory and it, you know, damages the endothelium. So that was, that was good for me to know. Um, so just a couple more questions I have for you, um, Chef AJ. For one, I'm just curious, you've already done so much and accomplished so much and come so far in your own journey and helped so so many other people. What what motivates you and what, what are you looking forward to? Mm, okay, so what I'm, okay, well, the two different questions. So <laughs> what I'm looking forward to is I have, my swan song because I, I can't keep I'm too old guys I can't keep writing books so I did a compilation this is called an advanced reader copy so it might end up being hardback it's called sweet indulgent and this is all my dessert recipes without sugar oil or salt and I used to be a pastry chef and the, this one this is a book with all color photos and I I that's I, I mean, my dream is to be a New York Times bestseller, and this might be my last or best shot. Amazing. That comes yeah. out in July of uh, 2024 this year. And that's so exciting. Uh, Where can people find out about well, that? And well, if they, if, they, if they just sign up for to be on my mailing list, chefaj.com, believe me, we're going to have like promotions like crazy that if they buy it within the week that matters, we'll give them like bonuses up the wazoo. And of course, it'll be available at bookstores. It doesn't matter where they buy it, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, that kind of thing. And so, but what motivates me, I guess, is just, you know, animals to, because if, if, if the people, if people go vegan for whatever reason, because they have compassion for animals, because they care about the environment or because of their health or in recent years, because it's a great way to lose weight if you do it the way that I've taught you. And then less animals will be harmed and killed. And so that's kind of always been the underlying reason of why I do what I do. You know, um, at the end of the day, it's always kind of, you know, it's for the animals. Thank you. Yes, I, I feel the same way. And it's it's nice to hear that from you because I'm sure people aren't really interested in hearing that from you. They're interested in how to lose the flesh. It's, 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 it's not a little trick, you know, make them, make them delicious desserts, help yeah. them lose weight because they, well, here's the thing, yeah. animal products, let, let's, let's just forget that they are deleterious to health and you can have all the other doctors talk about that. They're high calorie density food. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not really, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there's some wild game or something or an elk you could eat, but I mean, they're, they're not, they're not really, I mean, how are they conducive to weight loss? They have no fiber. They have no water, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants, micronutrients. They have a high calorie density, well, especially compared to fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. they're not- No not fiber, just, yeah. 
So they're, I mean, not to say that people can't have them and some people lose weight, but they're not really, they're not an ad libitum food and they're just going to make you sick. So don't do it. Don't do it. I agree. I agree. Okay. Well, the final question, which I ask all my guests, is there a particular word that for you sums up what being vegan is all about? Oh, the first thing that came to me was compassion. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. And I could feel that just in your story and in your energy and in your food. Yeah. Everything has that aura. So, so thank you. That's a wonderful note to leave it on. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was totally an epic conversation, um, epic point for the vegan posse. We're delighted to have you as part of the posse. Thank you for joining us and thank you for not just keeping the peace, but creating peace through our food choices and beyond. Thank you for being vegan and getting the word out the way you do it. Um, the Mutual Admiration Society. There we go. Um, we close every episode by taking 30 seconds of silence for all of the suffering animals, human and non-human, who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. So Chef AJ, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for the animals and we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Thank you, Chef AJ, and thank you, Posse. See you next time. Until then, stay strong and stay true. And stay vegan. <laughs> right on.